0: From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus.
1: The idea that, that the SEC is somehow constricted in its disclosure rulemaking by a materiality requirement is actually a relatively new idea. I mean, the, the concept of materiality, as you know, arises out of the anti-fraud context both the rules and and anti-fraud case law. It does not arise out of our rulemaking authority. And our job, you know, when it comes to rulemaking is not to ask the question of what basic principles of fraud prevention, what would that require in terms of disclosure? It's to ask best what information is important to a reasonable investor. What do they need to make the investment and the voting decisions that they need to make?
0: That was SEC Commissioner Allison Lee responding to a question about what standard the SEC should use when determining the merit of mandating investor disclosures at public companies. In our episode today, we talked to her about the boundary between public and private companies, and the increasing number of private companies that avoid raising capital in public markets from retail investors, and thus avoid having to make public disclosures. She shares her views on the efficacy of rules that may be making it harder to be public or easier to stay private and the consequence to investors, particularly Main Street investors. My returning co-host is UT McCombs Business School student, Ashish Dabe. Commissioner Lee, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I need to provide the standard disclaimer that the views expressed today are my own and not those of my fellow commissioners, or the staff
0: of the SEC. And I have a returning co-host, Ashish Dave, uh, a UT McCombs Business School student. Ashish, welcome back. It's great to be back. So, Commissioner Lee, we've got a a number of questions we want to explore with you uh, this morning. We're glad to have you on the program, and I'm going to let Ashish uh, start us
2: off. Thanks so much. So we'd just like to start with your your background first. You earned your JD from the University of Denver and then worked at a law firm on securities, antitrust and commercial litigation. So just interested to hear, you know, why did you pick this area of law to begin with?
1: So it's nice to meet you Ashish and thank you for the for the question. I got to say, I get asked that question a lot, but mostly by non-securities lawyers. Uh, why would you pick this area of the law? It's the same question I've asked of a lot of tax lawyers, I would add. But let me say this. I, I came to law as a second career. So so uh, when I graduated from law school, I was almost 40 years old. Prior to that, I, was, I worked in the oil and gas industry and then also in the software industry. Then I went to law school. And so what I would say is by the time I got to the firm, I had a little bit better understanding of the business world and how it operated and and just a um, sort of a general grounding that I think I would not have had in my in my early twenties had I gone straight through and I gravitated to what I viewed at the time as kind of the more sophisticated practice inside the firm where i where I went, which was a relatively large regional firm in denver and um the you know some of the some of the most interesting cases I was a litigator I had chosen litigation and some of the most intellectually challenging uh, cases and the most kind of stimulating areas I began to understand um, were in both of these disciplines, in securities and in antitrust. And and then over time, too, what I would say, uh, my understanding evolved to the point where I, I began to grasp that, in fact, I think both of these disciplines get at the heart of, of what makes a society and a democracy work. Um, kind of the distribution of wealth in a capitalist economy. So I was naturally intrigued by that and drawn to that. And I, I have to say it, it ended up being an extremely interesting and gratifying career, despite the fact that, um, I do get a lot of head scratching from, from the non securities uh, folks as to why I would, why I would choose securities law.
2: Well, it seems like uh, it, it has paid off, and you know specifically, you know, we can point to your your current role at the SEC. But just interested to hear, you know, what what made you decide to make the jump to the SEC?
1: Sure, I, I can say that I I always knew, even going into law school that I wouldn't stay in private practice. I, I was fortunate in that I got great training. I went to a really great firm that invested well in their um, employees and I got a lot of good training, but I knew from the start that eventually I would gravitate toward public service in some form or perhaps you know, nonprofit type work. So of course, being drawn to securities law, the SEC was a natural place to think about and consider. And at the time, well, it's still continuing, there is an office a Denver office of the SEC, and I had some friends, some former partners at my firm, and and some associates who had gone to the SEC. So I had a pretty good window into what their life was like and ha- and what their work was like, and then felt very fortunate when uh, I was able to to join. They they it's very competitive. You may know the jobs there are are challenging. They're interesting. Um, there's competition from around the country every time there's an opening. So I felt very fortunate to be able to make the jump to the SEC, which I did in 2005.
2: You know, you made that jump in, in 2005, as you say, and continued through to 2018. So would you mind highlighting some of the most impactful stops on your journey and how they inform your philosophy as a commissioner?
1: Sure. Um, gosh, there's so many. Um I could spend a lot of time on this one, but I won't. So I'll try to just kind of hit a few highlights. One of, the, one of the most sort of transformational cases that I brought, again, just to be clear, I was a litigator in private practice, and then I was in the enforcement division of the SEC for most of my, the career, my career at the SEC. And I had a case a couple years into my tenure at the SEC against a stockbroker who was taking bribes from a state treasurer and um, I it ended up going all the way to trial. I tried the case, uh, brought the investigation, tried the case, and, and then it was peeled at several levels and withstood. And but it was a pretty eye-opening experience to see firsthand these, the kind of damage that is wrought when there's breaches of public trust like that. And to think, it helped me think about what are the ways that, in, in a larger way, that we can get at this dynamic? Of course, we have to spend our time and our effort and our resources trying a case against an individual in those circumstances. But this is a this is such a, um, a troubling dynamic and so costly to our economy um, that you know there must be broader ways to get at it. So it made me start thinking less about the kind of litigating skills and more about policy and how we would get at those kind of problems. That was one. Another one where I felt particularly fortunate to have had this experience was working as a special assistant U.S. attorney. So I was deputized on on another case involving public corruption after that case and spent about a year working as a special assistant U.S. attorney. That helped me gain a lot of insight into the distinctions and the differences between civil and criminal enforcement. Why they're there, what they mean, what the implications of, of those um, differences are. That was very helpful to me in thinking about how we should proceed as an agency on the civil side. And then finally, of course, um, profoundly impactful was the work I did for Commissioner Stein. She Hired me as her counsel in late 2013, and I worked for her for about a year and a half on a wide range. Um, and in fact, I didn't. I did some enforcement, but mostly I did. Uh, I helped her with with other divisional type work, including corporation finance, um, a little bit of investment management, and the like. That was was just a, a really impactful experience because I really began to, instead of as a litigator, you know, you you, you have the set of rules you're supposed to follow. You operate within those rules, and and you advocate for your client's interest. You do what you can, but as a as a policymaker, you you have the luxury of thinking not what are the rules and how do I deal with them, but what should be the rules. And that too was you know again just a just a profoundly impactful experience. So I've been very lucky in my tenure at the SEC and getting to do a lot of different and interesting things.
0: So let's fast forward to today or recent times. You're now an experienced commissioner. And you recently gave a speech at SEC Speaks, the annual gathering where commissioners, offices, divisions all get together and tell the public what they've done, what they're likely to do. So it's an important event. And in your address this year, you talked about the growth of private markets and the resulting opacity of the companies uh, that are funded in these markets outside the purview of public markets. And I just, let's just start by asking, like, why did you raise this issue Like, why now? Why was it important for you to make this address?
1: So I will say this, you know, I think broadly speaking, that the balance between public and private markets and our our visibility into private markets is something I've been giving a lot of thought to for quite a while. And I've talked about this a number of times in the past. Uh, including in, in statements on our rulemakings in the in the exempt offering space, and then at SEC speaks last year as well, I talked about the um, the importance of having better options in the public sphere. So I do think this is this is an issue. It isn't new for me. It is certainly something that I have been looking at and thinking about for quite a while. I, I think historically, the public market with its robust registration and reporting requirements is what have made our capital markets the sort of, they say, the envy of the world. And that's what has allowed even the smallest of investors to participate in our markets on a relatively equal footing to the bigger players. But as you know, there's been a kind of a seismic shift in capital toward the private markets in recent decades. And that's one of the most significant changes in markets that we've seen in, in history. So I think the dramatically increasing amount of capital in the private markets and and the increasing segment of our markets that lack transparency, I think that is the dynamic that merits reflection, and that's what I was trying to bring to the forefront um, with the research and that, that I presented, and the, and the speech that I made most recently at SEC speaks. I think, you know, for us as regulators, it's it's not just a significant shift in the composition of our markets, which is. You know that's in and of itself something that we should spend time analyzing and understanding. But it's a shift that has reduced the overall visibility into the markets, and markets affect the economic well-being of all Americans, not just those who invest, as as we know. And I know you, Scott. I know you're familiar with the challenges in trying to analyze segments of the private market. And I've read and cited and and used the the reports and the research that that you did um, when when you were here at the agency. And I note too that you know, you identify that there are limitations on the information we have due to the limits that on some of the, like on Form D and some non-compliance and the like. So I think when it comes to overseeing these, you know, exceedingly complex markets that we have in the U.S., we know that what we don't know can hurt us. So I I want to take a close and careful look at it. Um, You know, a dynamic like this is something that I think deserves all of our focus
0: so you you didn't at all say that there's something wrong with this trend or inherently wrong with the trend and you noted it as a concern would you go as far to say there is something wrong uh, about this trend of more companies and more capital going private away from public
1: well so inherently wrong no um but you know by comparison do, do we have is the balance right i think is what we need to be looking at and then i guess the other thing that i tried to highlight in the remarks that I gave most recently, is a focus on how large companies can grow and stay in these markets. And that too is a new dynamic. And then we, I think we have to ask ourselves, is that right? I mean, it's, it's incumbent on on us as regulators t- to know the answers to these questions. And currently, I just don't think we do. I don't think we've paid enough attention here. And you know, it's, it's not the job of business to understand how these shifts may affect Markets, they're rightly looking after their own interests, but it is the job of regulators in Congress. So there's nothing wrong overall with raising capital in the, in the private markets. What I'm interested in is the trend writ large. And, and when you have a pretty enduring trend like this, with decreasing um, amounts of money being raised in the capital markets and accelerating growth in the private markets, and when we have exemptions from registration that were, you know, once the exception to the rule, but they're now kind of the exception that's swallowing the rule. And when you have companies that raise so much capital from so many investors and they grow large enough to just dwarf the average size of public companies, you know, you look at all of these things together and I think we have to say to ourselves, we have to examine the exempt offering framework, we need to examine the triggers for public company status and think about whether there need to be some adjustments made um, just to, to make sure that our regulatory mechanisms are functioning the way they were intended. Again, inherently wrong? No. Inherently in need of analysis? Yes.
2: And you touched on this a little bit, but you know, I'd like to dive into maybe some of the reasons behind the rise of companies avoiding public markets. There are two reasons that are commonly cited, You know, one being low interest rates and the availability of debt financing, the other possibly being increasing compliance costs of being public, you know, post Sarbanes-Oxley. So do you agree with either of these reasons or or both? Or, or are there any other reasons that, that you suspect might be the reason?
1: So I don't think there's any sort of individual the reason. Um, and certainly I have heard those those cited as well, in addition to some others. And I think you know, having having something cited versus having a, a reason documented and supported, you know, we, I think we have to carefully think about what's anecdotal. But what the two issues that you mentioned are, are intuitive, right? Like, that it makes sense, um, whether it's anecdotal or, or whether it's based in data. But we do have to look at the data. But here's what I would add to that. You know, the costs of going public and being public are often talked about as reasons for fewer IPOs, and, and there are costs there, there's no doubt. But I think, you know, you can look at the at the JOBS Act, for instance, and you find pretty significant contraction of costs there to being public um, as a as a counterbalance to to any expansion. But we didn't see much of a shift there. And, and you know, another uh, another issue that you hear cited regarding the, the shift here is the costs associated with the underwriters or the so-called middle market IPO tax that my former colleague, Rob Jackson raised: um, You have to look at the fact that there are diminished incentives associated with going public. In part, there's greater liquidity in, in the secondary markets now. Um, there used to be a much more straightforward trade-off between kind of significant growth opportunities and access to, to, you know, to capital. But that balance has begun to shift, and the continued kind of relaxing of exemptions from registration, I think, has has a contributed to that and you know and if issuers can can continue to access nearly unlimited capital in the private markets. And as I said, there were, and, and we see this liquidity increasing in these markets, there is a significantly reduced incentive to enter the public markets and we have to think about that. We have to look at all of the reasons, not just the reasons that are given to us by the folks who have an interest in seeing us do policy what in one direction or the other, um, and that, so that happens on both sides of the equation. You know, so we have to look at the data. It's you know we we have to we have to sort through all that noise.
2: And obviously, the incentives are uh, not evenly distributed across industry. So, take for example an oil well driller in in Texas who doesn't want to comply with with ESG reporting. So, do you believe that there are certain companies that are more likely to stay private?
1: that might be right um that and if it's true it's it's going to have been true for for quite some time so businesses have to weigh that balance all the time they have to think about not just the costs associated with disclosure meaning just the raw costs associated with hiring the bodies and the and the auditors and the and the folks but also what will investors do if they have this level of information will it will it increase our cost of capital and and so you know they have to make that calculation. Uh, or will will fossil fuel intensive companies have to have to make that calculation differently going forward? Perhaps, you know, do tech companies have a better, have a, an easier route as a result of that? Maybe, you know, that's the nature of our markets, and they all have to they all have to analyze and think about what the trade offs are in their individual industries.
0: So let's shift a little bit. You're talking about how a lot of investments are moving to private markets and the SEC has an asset management advisory committee and it was formed by the SEC to provide the commission with diverse perspectives. I'm quoting now on asset management related advice and recommendations. And they issued a recent report and they made a recommendation uh, by unanimous decision that the SEC should consider permitting retail investors access to a wide range of private investments so allowing retail investors to have access to private investments is this a good recommendation is there a fairness issue here or a problem with the average investor not having access to the returns of private markets
1: so I do I do hear it phrased that way as a fairness issue and, and kind of giving the investors access to the markets. I, I think there's a little bit of both going on. It's markets wanting access to the investors um as well. But but let me start with this the AMAC has been a fabulous resource for the commission including this recommendation and, and I you know I, it's been a bit since I looked at it but it was very thorough very thoroughly researched and very thoughtfully presented with a lot of different options there but let's but let's talk about when when you talk about this kind of fairness issue I, what that gets to at some level, is this notion of the definition of, a, of accredited investors, right? Um, because it's only accredited investors that are that can buy um, or that can, can freely make purchases in, in the private markets. And we did, as you know, open up some additional pathways recently to for for, for, embed, for investors to have to become accredited investors besides just wealth. Um, and I didn't oppose that. In other words, we expanded that and said, you know, certain types of financial professionals and the like I didn't oppose sort of deciding that there's another proxy for sophistication that we should be looking at. What I did take issue with, though, was the failure to address the ways in which the definition was over inclusive, meaning it's out of date because the wealth thresholds that we have in there haven't been adjusted for inflation in 40 years. That's a policy choice. That's not a, you know, that, that, that's, that's a very significant policy choice. But in any event, I also think that retail investors have quite a bit of access to private investments right now, meaning they, they come in through mutual funds. They come in through, and more and more that's happening. You hear of this, these so-called crossover investors, like mutual funds and pension funds that are, they're buying into the private markets. But, Amex recommendation, if I recall correctly, was to consider permitting access to a wider range of private investments, but it had some caveats, basically saying that, that the access to those investments needs to be subject to appropriate protections. Um, and then also that the, you know, the, the question of whether these investments could really be relied on to provide better returns or at least the, You know comparable to those in the public markets because otherwise why would we put investors at a greater risk here so i think the amac report has a good analysis of the extent to which private equity actually provides better returns but you understand that's an average it's just an average Um, i think it's um you know there's there's some a few really, really good investments that bring these really, really high returns, that pulls up the average. And then there's an awful lot of investments that don't. So I think we have to look at the at the big picture here. But I do value the AMEX contributions. And I do think that that particular report was extremely well done. And it's going to be useful to us going forward.
0: Just as a quick follow up to that, you make an important point that if you look at the average returns, they may be high. But if you look at the distribution of returns, and you allow retail investors into the private sphere, is there less likelihood they'll get the right tail of the distribution—the really good deals—and more likelihood they'll be the left tail of distribution and assign the bad deals? Is that what you are implying?
1: Well, that's what I'm concerned about, um, and I, and that's what I think regulators need to need to think about. How how can we ensure what what makes us think that retail investors would somehow be able to achieve these these average returns? Um, they They don't have the um the wherewithal they don't have the the resources and they can't diversify the way that some of the larger institutional investors can
2: I'd like to ask now if this institutional access for retail investors is is the right way for them to to access the private markets is is this the right solution or is there a better solution that we're not thinking of
1: The right solution for Meaning the AMAC report, are you saying is that the right solution?
2: So, in general, so the institutional investors serving as the medium through which retail investors can access private markets uh, is that is that the right structural solution in your opinion?
1: Well, it's certainly a potential solution. Um, To the extent we think there's a problem that needs solving, it's a potential solution. I would feel much more comfortable, and if I remember right, too, on the AMAC proposition, they they were suggesting that we allow it through registered investment companies where there are layers of protection for investors there that, that wouldn't otherwise occur if they were just investing directly. So the idea that accessing those markets, you know, through institutional investors, you know, it, again, I, I'm not sure I would say it's the right solution. I'm also not sure that there's an actual problem here that needs to be solved at least not on the part of investors but to the extent there is then then I do think it's um, it's important to look at and think about whether these investors can be expected to get the same types of results that institutional investors get but let's be let's be clear institutional investors are not always winners in these markets either you know there's a lot of risk in these markets so I think it's a place where we need to tread carefully
0: so this, I mean, you bring up a good point, and I, I you know, we we're just thinking about in advance, trying to think of the right questions to ask you. And one of them was, if we think about, you know, problems in private markets, we've never seen like an Enron or a WorldCom blow up, or like a Wells Fargo type of set of issues. Uh, or thinking about foreign markets like Wirecard, Luckin, Petrobras, like all these big public company failures, is there an equivalent in private markets that we can think of that? Would give us pause for concern for having retail investor access to private companies.
1: So that's a that's a good question, and and I, I'll start by saying I don't think you need to have um you know individual examples of massive frauds. We what we know, but we have them. We have we have Theranos. You know, we, it's not like it doesn't it doesn't happen. It does. Um, and and if you look at the. You look behind the curtain, as we're all getting to see now on that, some pretty surprising information there around what investors didn't know and knew full well they didn't know, but still invested hundreds of millions of dollars. That's that's a bit uh, distressing or, or concerning. Setting aside fraud, you've also got examples of companies like WeWork that were able to raise, you know just hundreds of millions of dollars. And then when the discipline of the public markets came in, it was a completely different ballgame. So I think we have some of those, but I think more importantly, if you look at the data from like NASA, the, the National Association of Securities Administrators, I think that's what that stands for, um, and others on the incidence of fraud more broadly in the private markets, there's a fair amount of it. There's a risk of fraud and misconduct and a risk of loss in all of our markets and we have to police them, but there isn't any question that it's enhanced. Those risks are enhanced in the, in the private markets. So that's that's why we've traditionally restricted or in part access to those markets um, and or, or the, restricted the access of those markets to to retail investors who may not have adequate information. Know, to kind of assess or the financial wherewithal to bear the risk of that loss.
2: And you've written that, and I quote, the expansion of private markets is not the natural result of the evolution of free market forces. Rather, it is a product of the framework of laws and regulations through which the markets operate, end quote. So would you be able to describe what you mean by this and maybe highlight a couple of examples of these legislative or regulatory actions or inactions for that matter
1: sure you know there there are numerous i think examples over the last decade and let me just say that that what you quoted there from from my speech um i'm not the only one to you know i I cited a couple of, of different folks for that proposition because what i was trying to say essentially is There's this idea that with regulation, we're somehow interfering with these otherwise forces that would otherwise be free and operate in a way that nature would take its course and everything would be. And I just, you know, markets are entirely about regulation, that's what they are. Um, They're just a framework of laws and regulations. And so the changes that we make, we have to think about very carefully and very thoughtfully. And there are a lot of examples over the last decade of the commission, I think, making changes to the securities laws. Related to exempt offerings, some that were required by statute and and some that weren't. I mean, we had the massive undertaking that was kind of fell under the rubric of harmonization. And then we had a release, harmonization of of private offerings. And and we had a release in November of 2020 on that. We, you know, that had amendments that raised offering limits for like three different types of offerings, it increased investment limitations for certain investors. And importantly, it shortened the integration safe harbor period from, from six months to 30 days. It expanded the use of, of, test the waters communications across all types of offerings. Um, and, you know, it, it, it permitted the creation of a, of special purpose vehicles for crowdfunding. Um, and a big one, of course, also you, that I know you know of was, opening up private offerings to general solicitation through, through the Jobs Act. So a lot of affirmative steps. Um And then I would say in terms of inaction, we never finished the 2013 proposal that's out there to amend Form D to enhance the ability to evaluate these offerings. We never, I said this earlier, we never have acted to adjust the accredited investor wealth thresholds to account for inflation. And, you know, not only that, but we didn't even we declined to even index them for inflation going forward. We could take the, even taking where we are right now as a baseline, we we could have indexed them for inflation going forward. And that had strong support um, from a number of groups, including uh, analysis by the SEC staff and and the Office of Small Business Capital Formation. So those are all choices. Inaction and action, you know, are both choices. And I do think uh, a series of, of both types of choices have have led us to where we are right now in terms of the balance between public and private.
0: Yeah, you you bring a good point, and I hadn't really thought about it, but I, I had the opportunity to work on that 2013 uh, release that proposed to collect additional data on Form D. But what your 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 broader point is okay, we're permitting greater ability to stay private, but there's no commensurate attempt to collect information to make sure that's a, a that the efficacy of doing that is correct. We have no way to measure the impact yeah. of that. Did I summarize that correctly? Th-
1: that's right. In other words, it's it, and and each time we take another step, we, we don't have the data by definition to help us really gauge the costs and benefits as we're required to do by statute, as you know.
0: So there's there's one piece of uh, legislation and interpretation of that over the years has occasionally gotten or received attention, and that is, A shareholder of record and a beneficial owner of a company dividing the line between being public and private. And I'm wondering, do you have like a two sentence explanation of what a shareholder of record is or a beneficial owner is and why that's important and demarking the line between public and private?
1: Sure. So so the the difference between shareholder of record, just for folks that aren't kind of in the weeds on this stuff, and, and a beneficial owner, the beneficial owner is just whoever it is who's economic interests are at stake. Um, so you invest in a mutual fund and, and you know, what when those shares go up or down, up or down, that, that redounds to your benefit or your detriment. And, you know, that's money in your bank account and voting power. The, the shareholder of record, of course, is not you. You are not a shareholder of record when you own through a mutual fund. You're not even a shareholder of record if you called up and owned directly through your broker, say Merrill Lynch. Um, And that's because of the way the SEC defines what we mean when we say shareholder of record. And technically, the definition is simply, for the most part, one massive shareholder of record who is a nominee of of the clearing of DTCC called CD and Company. But then we have, in addition to that, the staff that we've actually defined it to expand it to uh, at least to the level of brokers and banks. So Merrill Lynch will be counted as a, um, and I'm not picking on them, I'm just using it as an example. They will be counted as a as a shareholder of record, but not the thousands of customers who hold their shares at Merrill Lynch. Those are the beneficial owners.
0: So, you know, this is something that I remember when on staff we struggled with a lot is like, maybe the, the definition of an owner of a company no longer reflects the intent of what maybe statute thought Here we are, we've landed on it. We have, you know, broker dealers as being the record of owner and the millions behind it aren't. But do you have a view on whether the number of owners or picking a number is the right threshold in terms of treatment of public and private?
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, the answer is I, I do, and it's informed by the in-depth analysis that the SEC did back in the '60s when Congress asked it to do that. So, when when Section 12g was enacted in um, I want to say 1964, that came after Congress had asked the SEC to do um, a thorough study of the securities markets. They did some uh, a massive and very impressive study ended up being some 3,000 pages long. And in that study, one of the issues they were wrestling with was when should a company that has declined to be listed on a public exchange, nevertheless, be required to do so? Because they were looking at the issue, the same one that I'm looking at today and asking themselves, you know, have we got the right balance here? And so the so, so SEC undertook this, this analysis. They looked at a number of different approaches to decide to helping like what should be the trigger for uh, requiring a company to become listed. And they, they looked at things like trading volume, like public float, like revenues and assets, at a lo- number of different potential triggers. And it concluded that in fact, number of shareholders was the was the had the most meaning and was the best approach so so that you know so the answer is i do think and then i will tell you this too jo- the jobs act reaffirmed that so so in the jobs act as i know you know they, they they made some changes to that so we had from the 60s we had the requirement that said if you have 500 or more shareholders of record you need a list and then in the jobs act they changed it to 2000 but then they said except with respect to non-accredited there can only be there can still only be 500 so what they did there was sort of say we still affirm that the number of shareholders is the right way to look at this and in, and not just the number but also the nature by sort of honing in on on accredited and non-accredited investors so that is not to say that there's no value in looking at and considering other triggers but an awful lot of thought has gone into the the question of what the right trigger is, and Congress has spoken on the issue twice, in the 60s and then again on the JOBS Act, and so that is where we are.
0: So let me ask the unfair question. Well, half of it's unfair. So first half, should we change the 12G threshold to beneficial ownership? And if so, uh, is there a right number of beneficial owners for which a company should be uh, publicly reporting?
1: Well, so when you say we, should we change that? Do you mean the SEC or um, yeah, the
0: collective we? OK, let's go with yeah. the SEC, Congress, somebody. Should the definition yeah. be changed?
1: Yeah. I mean, in other words, right now, you know, that would require, in my view, undertaking a study similar to the one that was undertaken in the 60s. You know, in other words, is there some reason why an, a different approach is warranted? Perhaps, but that again, that would need to be studied. What I know right now is that you know we've had very recent congressional direction that in fact, the number of shareholders is the right way to look at it. So then you have to ask yourself if, in fact, we are supposed to be considering how many shareholders um, have an interest in a company? if that is the right consideration, don't we have a pretty artificial overlay on that? When what we're really looking at are CD and company and banks and brokers, that does not give us in any, uh, you know, in any real sense, how many shareholders have an interest or have beneficial interests at stake. So I, you know, the question of whether there should be a different trigger, I, I, I would, I would welcome an exploration of that. But I, what I know is what our mandate is right now. And I know that mandate has been thought through pretty carefully, so you know my my view is if that's in fact our mandate, then we are not you know things have changed significantly in our markets since the nineteen sixties, and almost nobody holds as a shareholder of record almost everybody holds through their brokers or their i mean their their banks or their brokers.
0: Let's shift this discussion a little bit to disclosure and I just want to start by saying, you know, in this public-private debate, you know, part of the reason that it's relevant is because when you become a public company, you have to disclose a lot of things to your shareholders. And let's just start with the burdens of being a public company. Do you think they are in any way too onerous? Are there costs that we're imposing that are unreasonable or are there areas where we're not requiring enough? You know what are your general thoughts on disclosure and the burdens that they entail?
1: yeah, I mean that is the balance that we have to be constantly you know c- considering we we and we've spent the last few years as you know decreasing a lot of the um of those uh, so called burdens or some of the disclosure requirements as part of the disclosure effectiveness project and we overhauled a number of items in reg s k over the last maybe you know, five years or so um the overhaul description of the business risk factors litigation and importantly mdna so so we have been trimming back on those and you know so it's not a it's it's been almost entirely trimming back i would say uh, in, in recent years but i do think it's a balance we have to look at and think about every single time we affect that balance whatever direction we go are there areas where there is not enough disclosure so this this may be obviously anticipated answer of mine, but you know I think yes, I think climate and ESG more broadly, and I think investors have been pretty clear that these are areas that are lacking in terms of their needs for, for decision useful information.
2: Like to shift gears now to actually a topic that you just brought up, uh, which is climate disclosure and and ESG disclosure earlier in the year in your capacity as acting chair of the SEC, you requested public comment on potential disclosure. So just interested to hear from you if you learned anything from that request that you didn't already know or or believe, and did it shift your thinking in any direction?
1: Oh my goodness, yes, I have learned a lot. Um, I think, you know, one of the most significant things that that request did was really establish a, a large record of data. and and investor views and and issuer views and public views on climate and ESG disclosure that will help inform a proposal. I mean, I I know you know we don't always or, or even often solicit comment before even a proposal goes out, but I thought here, you know, I wanted to have an open comment file because of just how complex these issues are and what a wide range of views there are out there. So I think it has enhanced our knowledge about what data investors particularly value, it's deepened our understanding of the costs associated with that, especially as it relates to the extent to which these disclosures are already occurring. Right. In other words, companies are already making a lot of these disclosures. So I'm not sure how much additional costs. You know, but what we will be measuring will be the delta there. Between what they're already doing and, and if and if we make any additions to that, I, I can't say there's a particular data point that I would isolate. Although I will say I've learned an awful lot about carbon accounting, about you know um, from from about greenhouse gas emissions and the GHG protocol. There's just been you know the, the data, the record is now replete with information about kind of what investors want to see, what issuers think is reasonable and workable, and you know the the how well some of these voluntary regimes are actually working in practice. So I think it's been quite informative. And I very much value and appreciate the public spending their time and their resources weighing in here.
0: You you use the term decision useful. You've used that term in your speeches, others are using it too. And I my, my one question I have is and and in, in the olden days when we thought about disclosure, we said, well, is it a, going to be a material disclosure? And that was a threshold for uh, requiring it. Now we've moved to this term decision useful. I mean, why why that shift? Is it more than just semantics? Is there a particular meaning in, in phrasing it that way?
1: Well, let me say mm-hmm. that, let me start with decision useful is, is this a term of art. It's not a legal term, but I, I think it's interesting to call it the olden days. I, I think the idea that, that the SEC is somehow constricted, In its disclosure rulemaking by a materiality requirement, it's actually a relatively new idea. I mean, the, the concept of materiality, as you know, arises out of the antifraud context, both the rules and antifraud case law. It does not arise out of our rulemaking authority. And our job, you know, when it comes to rulemaking is not to ask the question of what basic principles of fraud prevention, what would that require in terms of disclosure? It's to ask us what information is important to a reasonable investor? What do they need to make the investment and the voting decisions that they need to make? So we look at it from the viewpoint of materiality, what topics, right, are material, executive compensation, financial, financial data, um, you know, any number of other topics. But then the question, you know, we don't stop there. Then the question is, well, what information within those topics is decision useful to investors? So that's how I think about the two areas. What topics are material and what information within that topic is decision useful? Because not every piece of information within a particular topic is going to be decision useful for investors. But the topic itself broadly needs to be material in the sense just as a practical matter, not as a legal matter. Um, so, you know, if if you want to focus on on legal terms, it, it's important to understand the legal underpinnings of materiality, which is again about antifraud. It's not about our, our rulemaking authority. So in getting decision useful information into the markets, it's it's a helpful term, I think, insofar as it focuses us on why we make disclosure rules, and that is to aid the decision-making process that reasonable investors undertake. So we look to them to help us define that. They're the ones who know what information they need. We have to collaborate with them to get it right. We also have to collaborate with the providers of the information to to make sure we know that that what they need and want, what investors need and want, really translates into how they operate in in a way that's, that's reasonable and realistic. So it's not unlike the dialogue that occurs more informally between, say, investor relations departments and investors all the time. So I think decision useful is just a shorthand way of identifying the nature of the information sought. And I I think it's important to make sure that we don't drift into what I regard as a relatively recent phenomenon, which is the suggestion that we're somehow constricted and must take every line item disclosure and show that it's qualitative or quantitatively material, which has never been the case.
0: Yeah. So this makes me wonder, and and I actually can recall back when Mary Jo White was the chair of the SEC working on the diversity proposal. And one of the questions that was asked the economists was, does diversity matter in affecting firm value? And one of the answers were, well, we don't really know because we've never actually required the information to be collected systematically and robustly enough with a long enough time series to actually measure the effect. Mm-hmm. So there's a chicken and egg problem. And so does decision useful help us get to a place where we can collect information that we think may be material, but until we do collect it, we won't be able to answer that question. Is that a rationale that the SEC could use in motivating some of these disclosures?
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting point. But what I would say is to the extent what we're talking about right now is climate and ESG, we're in a slightly different position because investors, you know, there's been this groundswell of of information that's been investors have been demanding and and issuers have actually been supplying. So there is a fair amount of information out there right now that companies have that, you you know, the the statistics as as well as I do on the number of companies that are already disclosing a lot, a fair amount of information on things like climate and diversity. Um, And I've talked, in fact, recently to um, quant firms who, who ingest diversity information into their algos you know so so it's out there unlike maybe it was even 5 years ago um so but but you're right to point out right that that we have to be able to we got to start somewhere um and but here i think we've got a we're fortunate in that, you know, we have a pretty good track record right now of information because of the fact that investors have um, so overwhelmingly determined that they need and want this information in order to price risk, in order to allocate capital in the way that they deem appropriate. They need this information and and issuers are, are necessarily responding to those requests. And so there is a fair amount of data out there right now and a fair amount of of um, disclosure under certain different various regimes that we, will help us understand what's working, what what maybe isn't working as well. You know, we're not starting from scratch in this space.
2: So, you touched on on the groundswell of information that has come up. Related to ESG, so recently Moody's released its ESG ratings methodology. This was back in 2019, and this is a system that attempts to quantify the credit materiality of a company's ESG score. Even though they provide a score, Moody's itself cautions that you know these scores are unlikely to predict actual credit worthiness, at least in the short term. So, just would like to get your thoughts on your you know the rise of third party ratings agencies. Uh, and the role that they play in this debate.
1: Sure. And just to be clear, I'm not talking specifically about Moody's, and Moody's isn't the only one that that uses ESG factors in in various ways. But but understanding the potential for climate and ESG factors to contribute to credit risk, I think, is very important. And credit rating agencies, just like the rest of us, are hampered to some degree by by the lack of data. Um, so you know, as we improve the quality of data in these markets, I think that will help facilitate rating. But as you know, I'm sure we, we don't regulate the substance of how credit rating agencies go about analyzing credit. What we can do, and the only thing that, that we're charged with doing is ensuring broadly that, that, that it's transparent and consistent, that they're transparent and consistent about what they're doing. And I think that may become easier and more clear once there are clearer disclosure standards in place.
0: So I know we're bumping up to the end of our time with you and you know, we had one last question we wanted to ask you related to climate and it's going across the pond and thinking about Europe and international standard setters and so my two-part question for you is are we behind Europe or other jurisdictions in thinking about climate disclosure and as part of that answer What role do international standard setters like the IFRS or organizations like SASB or the Financial Stability Board, what role do they play in helping us think in the U.S. about what the right disclosure standards should be related to climate?
1: Sure. So the first part of the question, are we behind Europe? Um, I, I think Europe is ahead of us in some respects and and they've also sort of taken a different approach they started with taxonomy rather than than the sort of the issuer disclosure piece and we're taking a potentially we'll see what you know assumably we're going to come out with a with a proposal on, on issuer disclosure so we're taking a, a sort of a different approach to the sequencing there um we're looking at issuer disclosure and a, a taxonomy at least at least of the type that they're implementing in the EU maybe something for other policymakers in the U.S. to consider it at some point, or I mean, arguably some of that would fall within the SEC's jurisdiction over, over investment advisors and, and money managers. But in any case, what I think and hope is that we can learn from those jurisdictions, like those in the EU that are ahead of us. And, and ultimately, though, we have to make choices that are consistent with our own markets, our own regulatory framework. But what I hope is that we can harmonize neither lead nor follow just collaborate and harmonize and so kind of what role will the international organizations play i think and hope a very important and strong leading role I, I i will say that and i and i've said this in many times and in many different venues international cooperation and coordination here is really key we need to have consistency across jurisdictions specifically because this is a global issue and we and we have global markets. So, you know, at the commission, we're involved with efforts to help develop the International Sustainability Standards Board. We have representation um, on IOSCO, the, their technical expert group that's working with IFRS on its efforts uh, to develop the ISSB. And my my hope, what I see as a goal, is for something like the ISSB to establish a baseline. For climate and ESG that individual jurisdictions can build on and, you know, to accommodate their individual needs. But it's an extremely, extremely significant and important effort that I, you know, I hope we can continue to work with our colleagues all over the globe on.
0: Thank you for that. Commissioner Lee, thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Our episode today reminded me of public policy work that I performed many years ago with the SEC on capital raising in private markets. Ever since the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley, there's been a secular decline in the number of public companies listed on national market exchanges and reporting with the SEC. Some like to blame this decline on reporting burdens. It's too costly to be a public company. Others like to blame it on low interest rates. Debt financing is cheap and you don't have to mess with pesky shareholders. It just so happens, right after we recorded our episode, a new paper by Michael Ewan, Kieran Zhao, and Ting Shu was presented at a conference here at UT showing new evidence that regulatory costs have only had a very modest effect on keeping firms private, and no effect on public firms going private. The authors conclude, based on their evidence, that regulatory changes in the early 2000s does not appear to cause a decline in public firms. Commissioner Lee pointed out that SEC rules, some mandated by Congress, have made it increasingly easier for firms to stay private. And once out of the public domain, it becomes harder to understand their role in and impact on financial markets. In 2013, I worked on a proposal to update Form D. That's a notice to the SEC provided by public companies each time they raise capital from accredited investors. It gives basic information about the offering size, number of investors, industry, whether a broker was used, if it was generally solicited, as well as other important information. The rule was never adopted, and Commissioner Lee makes it a point to say so. I wonder if that pertains to some future action. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate it and don't be shy about telling others about it. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The Opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not necessarily the University of Texas at Austin. Today's student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Moody's College of Communication.